Welcome to this week's edition of Worcester Talking News, brought to you by Worcester News and Equipment for the Blind and with kind permission of the Worcester News. I'm Pippa Curtis, editor for this week, and joining me in the studio today is Jane Fairs, with John Plush as our recording engineer sitting behind the glass. Copying and admin is done by Carol Hartle, and I'd like to extend a warm welcome to any new listeners today, and I hope you enjoy our recording. As always, we'll include a list of useful telephone numbers at the start, then the headline stories, followed by some general news stories, a little bit of sport, the thought for the week, a trip down memory lane, sunrise and sunset times, and of course the birthdays. And if we don't have a record of your birthday and you'd like to be included, please do get in touch and we can add you to the birthday file. I'm sure you're probably all familiar by now with the arrangement that the obituaries are at the very end of the recording. Please do keep sending us your feedback, good, bad and ugly, as the team here wants to make the recording as pleasurable and relevant as possible for you. If you have any comments or problems, our telephone number is 01905 767 766. And please be prepared for an answer phone to take your call. Alternatively, just pop a note in your wallet. Listeners are kindly reminded to return memory sticks promptly to facilitate a smooth operation and use of resources. Finally, the service is free to users, but if you would like to make a donation, it can be sent to Colin Chance House, Wilds Lane, Worcester, WR5, 1DA. So let's start this week with the telephone numbers, which Jane is going to read out for you. Police, non-emergency, 101, Crime Stoppers, 0800 555 111. Worcester Hub for Council Matters, 01905 765 765. Worcester Live, which has details of what's on at the Swan Theatre, Huntingdon Hall and Henry Sandon Hall, 01905 611 Four two seven, Malvern Theatres, O one six eight four, eight nine two, two seven seven, Samaritans now a free phone number, one one six one two three, here at Holland Chance House, O one nine o five, seven six seven seven six six. Well, let's hope it's not too long before we can get back to theatres and cinemas, etc. And those numbers will become relevant again. Right, headlines for this week are as follows. Wednesday, March the 17th. Buildings to be sold in 18 million city revamp. Thursday, March the 18th. Aftermath. Crash wrecks parked car, wall and lamppost. Friday 18th, Covid threat, thugs face spitting attack. Saturday 20th, predators assaulted woman in her own home. Monday 22nd, plans for new wine bar and food hall. And Tuesday 23rd, silent tribute, one year on. 
So, Jane, if you'd like to start with the first story from last Wednesday. And that's Wednesday, March the 17th. Buildings to be sold in 18 million city revamp. Several prominent city centre buildings look set to be bought by the council as part of a multi-million pound regeneration project. Worcester City Council is looking to purchase key city centre properties, Trinity House, the Scala Theatre and the former Panama Jack's restaurant in Angel Place as part of the 17.9 million Future High Street Fund awarded to the city at the end of last year. The City Council says once purchased, Trinity House would become apartments and the former Panama Jack's building would be used for leisure activities. The city's historic Scala Theatre is already set to be brought back into use as an arts venue alongside the neighbouring and Grade 2 listed Corn Exchange. The council agreed terms over buying the historic Corn Exchange in Angel Street earlier this year and negotiations continue over the sale of the other buildings. The council's Policy and Resources Committee meets next week to discuss going down the compulsory purchase order route if necessary. Committee papers say the respective owners of the buildings have all said they are willing to sell, but the council is now moving to secure the sale. In case talks break down. Compulsory purchase orders would be used as a last resort, the council said. The city council has also bought the former co-op supermarket in Angel Street, which could be used for offices and a dining club. Other plans include reshaping Angel Place Market to make space for outdoor events, such as a summer cinema or an urban beach alongside play facilities for children. Trinity House sits at the corner of St Nicholas Street and Queen Street and was home to a former co-op department store in the 1960s. Worcestershire County Council sold the building in 2014 after moving its archive and archaeology department to the Hive two years earlier, leaving it largely empty. The County Council had teamed up with the City Council, which owns the neighbouring Corn Market car park, to try and sell both as part of a deal. John Lewis had eyed up the building before putting forward a £150 retail park plan to open off Newtown Road in 2016, before those grand plans were roundly rejected by the Council's planning committee. The regeneration work will cost around £29 million, with the City Council and other local partners putting forward £11 alongside the government's contribution. The work means the area around Angel Street and Angel Place, the Foregate, the Cross and Trinity Street, would be completely regenerated to create an urban neighbourhood, focusing on new shops, cafes, restaurants and bars, as well as other cultural facilities, some family-friendly attractions as well as housing and office space, transforming it into a destination for young people and families.
The hope is that the work to the northern side of the city centre will challenge the disparities between the south side, which has seen huge investments in recent years, including the multi-million pound Cathedral Square development, creating a new yet different area and putting an end to the sale of two cities. Welcoming the huge million-pound work to transform the northern part of the city centre, City Council leader Mark Bayliss said this is fantastic news for Worcester and is evidence of the government's promise to invest in communities. And the headline story for Thursday, March the 18th, Aftermath, Crash Wrecks Parked Car, Wall and Lamp Post. Residents on a quiet city street were shocked after an incredible crash on Tuesday night, which destroyed a brick wall, a lamppost and a parked car. Emergency services were called to the crash in Woodstock Road, which was described by neighbours as being like a bomb had gone off at around 6.30pm. A spokesman for West Mercia Police said, The driver appeared to have suffered some sort of medical, medical episode. He was breathalyzed at the scene and we can confirm he hadn't been drinking. Eyewitness Victoria Phelps, 35, said she felt lucky that nobody had been killed in the collision. She said, I was watching TV in the front room when I heard an almighty bang. It was really very loud. I jumped up and came out to see what on earth had happened and all I could see was thick smoke. I could see the car, it was a silver mini, in the middle of the road. The driver had lost control at the bend and slammed into a parked car on my neighbour's drive and then into a lamppost, and gone straight through the garden wall. It was incredible and so scary. When I saw all the smoke, I thought the car was going to blow up. The driver was a young man. He got out straight away. All the neighbours came out to see what had happened. We're a very close-knit community here. The police turned up and took him away, and then the tow truck came and towed away what was left of the car. Miss Phelps, who has lived on the road with her parents all her life, said speeding is a big problem in the area. She said, We had a big crash here a few years back. A drunk student crashed into a tree just opposite to where this crash happened. People go far too fast. They use the road as a racetrack. There are lots of student accommodation along here and we're hoping the council will install a speed bump. Somebody will end up dead if we're not careful. A Hereford and Worcester Fire and Rescue Service spokesman said, A crew from Worcester Fire Station was called at 18.30pm on March the 16th to an RTC in Woodstock Road, Worcester, involving a car which was in collision with two parked cars and a lamppost. There were no persons trapped and no casualties. Residents reported a short power cut as the electric had to be switched off to remove a lamppost which was dislodged in the collision. And the next one is Friday, March the 19th, COVID threat thugs face spitting attack. An aggressive nuisance who spat in a Worcester police officer's face after claiming he had COVID-19 will be kept on a much tighter leash once he gets out of jail. Geraldo Collins, aged 31, was jailed for 22 months for the attack on Sergeant Sarah England and must now comply with a criminal behaviour order for three years or face more time in jail. The defendant was charged with one offence of assaulting an emergency worker in Worcester. 
The custody sergeant was attacked on March the 17th last year. Collins spitting in her face while claiming he had COVID. He's also banned from associating in any public place with certain named individuals and from refusing to leave a premises, area or location when asked to do so by the landowner, the agent, tenant, occupier or a police officer acting in pursuance of a Section 35 dispersal direction. We have previously reported on cases where criminals have weaponized COVID-19. They include Paul Biddle, a father of three, who spat at a police officer and told them that he hoped they would die of coronavirus. Biddle was jailed for 27 months. Alan Bishop, 69 years, initially denied spitting in the face of a police officer, but changed his plea after seeing the CCTV footage in Worcester Magistrates Court. Magistrates gave Bishop an eight-week electronically monitored curfew which will be in place daily between the hours of 7pm and 7am. He was ordered to pay compensation of £650. Charlotte Cowley spat in a police officer's face on the eve of the national coronavirus lockdown and assaulted four others, kicking and biting them. The 34-year-old mother of two admitted five assaults against emergency workers, all police officers, at Worcester Crown Court. Three of the assaults happened at an address in Northfield Street on January the 21st last year and two at an address in Back Lane South on March the 22nd last year. Police were called to Northfield Street following reports of an assault on a man living there, though no charge was pursued in relation to this. The judge jailed her for 11 months, half of which she will serve in custody and half in the community on licence. And headline for Saturday, March the 20th, a predator assaulted woman in her home. A drunken sex attacker groped a married woman's thighs after entering her Worcester home uninvited. And a judge has warned he will jail city men who take advantage of women. Darren Jones admitted sexual assault on the vulnerable woman in Worcester kissing her head and stroking her upper thighs in front of her husband as she and her partner begged him to stop. Judge Burbage, speaking at the sentence hearing, said, In the public domain at the moment is the fact that men feel they can engage in inappropriate behaviour towards women without condemnation. This court will condemn those who act in such a way by immediate sentences of imprisonment. The 49-year-old defendant, previously of Bransford Road, St John's Worcester, appeared for sentence on Thursday after pleading guilty to the sexual assault at a hearing the day before, only accepting responsibility for his actions on what would have been the first day of trial. Philip Beardwell, prosecuting, said Jones arrived at the home of the couple at 3.30 in the morning on July the 24th last year and shouted, get out of bed, you lazy bastard. During the assault on the married woman, he touched her upper thighs, kissed the top of her head, and told her he wanted to have sex with her. She replied she was married and did not want to, said the prosecutor. The court heard how they did not manage to get Jones out of the house until 8am. She told him repeatedly to stop, said Mr Beardwell. 
In a victim personal statement, she said she had been feeling anxious as a result of what happened and has been forced to increase her anxiety medication. Mr Beardwell added, she's afraid to go into town, she resists intimacy with her husband, which has caused difficulties in their relationship. The victim also reported difficulties sleeping and had expressed anxiety that the dependent knows where she lives and so she fears him attending her address again. Jones has eight previous convictions for 16 offences. The most relevant was in 1997 when he was jailed for 14 years for attempted rape, indecent assault and making threats to kill. Michael Anning, defending, said mitigation came from the fact that Jones had pleaded guilty, even if what somewhat belatedly, which prevented the victim having to come to court to give evidence. Mr Anning said Jones had not always been an unwelcome visitor at the address and that nothing of this kind had ever happened before. At the time, Jones was literally falling over drunk and there was no attempt to continue with a serious form of sexual assault. Jones remains on powerful medication and has a lump on his neck which causes him severe pain and another on his spine and suffers from irritable bowel syndrome. The defendant is on prescription drugs for physical pain and for his anxiety, Mr Anning told the court. Judge James Burbage QC told Jones he was fortunate not to be charged with a more serious crime such as burglary with intent to commit a sexual offence. Judge Burbage said that the victim had become much more anxious as a result of what Jones did to her and his unwelcome advances. His previous convictions many years ago were relevant and worrying. However, he accepted that Jones had been out of trouble for some years and that Jones had both medical and mental health issues. Judge Burbage jailed him for 14 months. A 10-year restraining order was made which prevents Jones making contact with the victim or her husband or from going within 500 yards of their address. Jones must also sign the sex offender register for 10 years. The next story is Monday, March the 22nd. Plans for new wine bar and food hall. A food hall and wine bar could soon be opening on the site of a historic former city centre fire station. The plan, by Richard Everton, owner of City Wine Bar and Shop Bottles in New Street, would see a new wine shop and artisan food hall open in the ground floor of the former fire station in Copenhagen Street in Worcester. The work would form part of a plan to convert the rest of the building into luxury apartments. Space would be made available in the new food hall for crepes and pastries, tapas, um, rotisserie chicken and a delicatessen, as well as a large selection of beer and wine. Mr Everton said he was aiming to be open by the end of the year. A new place would be a brand new wine shop and a big food court especially focusing on local producers and local chefs who want to take concessions in there, he said. We will have a wine and beer dispenser so that you can have a glass of wine or buy wine from the shop and walk around and get a pizza or a rotisserie chicken or something like that. We will also have a big outdoor seating area too and we have plans to hold tasting and other events. 
We just want to bring an iconic city centre building back into use because it has been empty for years. We want to try and give the opportunity to local and independent producers rather than just handing it over to big chains and brands. It just makes a lot of sense. Mr Everton said the city's former fire station was the perfect place to make his vision a reality and had been looking for a new building for a number of years. I've been on the lookout for new premises for probably three years, he said. Bottles has been open for about five years now and has gone from strength to strength and we need something that will complement it and is slightly bigger so that it will fit the concept I have in my head. Bottles will remain in New Street and we don't have any plans for it not to be there. Lockdown and the closure of Bottles meant the wine merchants was forced to move online. Mr Everton said a move that made him realise more space was required. We've had our online shop and the wine tasting events went from strength to strength and the home delivery was getting bigger and bigger and we realised once we would be fully back open we just wouldn't have enough space, he added. The opportunity came along for the fire station and it felt right. It has the location, it's highly visible and it has the space. It was a perfect fit for the concept I have had now for a number of years. Last month, Morven-based developer Guthrie Roberts revealed multi-million pound plans to convert part of the far, former fire station to a mix of 28 one- to three-bed luxury apartments. A penthouse apartment with a balcony facing Worcester Cathedral and a first-floor terrace and urban garden are also planned. The local listed building, which has been left empty since fire chiefs relocated in 2015, was built between 1939 and 1941 by Percy Thomas and Ivor Jones. Ben Roberts, managing director of Guthrie Roberts, said, Our plans include approximately 28 luxury contemporary apartments, a mix of one or two and three beds, to provide options for a broad range of buyers. We intend to have an exciting commercial unit on the ground floor and there will be novel city garden for residents, external walkways, a courtyard for private parking and luxurious interiors. And the headline story for Tuesday, March 23rd. Silent tribute, one year on. Worcester will join the rest of the nation in reflecting on a year since the start of the first COVID-19 lockdown today. But not every experience has been a bad one. People across the city will fall silent at midday to remember those who have lost their lives or been bereaved after the pandemic claimed claimed the lives of more than 126,000 Britons, including more than 1,300 people from Worcestershire, as part of a national day of reflection. It was a year ago today, Monday, March the 23rd, 2020, when Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced the first UK lockdown. And since then, many more thousands were ill and the past year has seen us all stuck behind closed doors for months at a time. Worcester Covid survivor Steve Kelly said he would reflect on those who didn't make it and think of the wonderful NHS. Mr Kelly, who spent five days in intensive care with coronavirus, said he appreciates life now more than ever. He said, I am one of the lucky ones. 
I'll take a minute today to think about those people who didn't make it. And I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for the NHS, so it will be prominent in my thoughts. Mr Kelly, age 58 of Whittington Road, said his brush with death had made him think differently. He said, I no longer think that life is a given. I'd never been in a life-threatening situation before and it really separates the wheat from the chaff. I really appreciate my friends and family who were there for me and it has brought us closer together. It also made me appreciate how important I am to my children and family and friends. For example, I used to have a five-minute chat with my 87-year-old father on the phone, but now it's more like half an hour. The father of three has lost two stones since his ordeal and says he's well on the road to recovery. But while many in Worcester and everywhere else are recovering from that and the other effects of the pandemic, some have enjoyed life-changing and affirming experiences. Like many others, the extra time on her hands allowed Naomi Lloyd from Worcester to focus on her weight loss goals. Since the last lockdown, I've lost four stone five pounds in ten months, said Mrs Lloyd. I needed to do it. Something did just click in my head. It was strange that it took a lockdown to do it, but I'm so happy I did. One of the lesser seen consequences was for new mums. Shah Jones explained... It'll be a year on Tuesday I had my baby on the first day of lockdown. I can't believe it's been a year now and my son is one next week. Unfortunately, they'd closed the birthing centre so I couldn't have a water birth and my son didn't meet any family members until he was four months old. He still hasn't met much of his family yet. The lockdown announced on this day last year saw Boris Johnson tell the public they would only be allowed to leave their homes for limited reasons including for food shopping, exercise once per day, medical care and travelling for work when absolutely necessary. All shops selling non-essential goods were told to close, with gatherings of more than two people in public banned. Events including weddings but excluding funerals were cancelled. We want your stories on how lockdown has changed your life, for better or worse. Maybe you've had success starting a new business or job. Perhaps your lifestyle has changed for the better. Have you lost a lot of weight or become far healthier? Has not going out enabled you to save money? Maybe for a flat or a house or towards a car or dream holiday? If you want to share your story, get in touch. Email andy.mitchell at newsquest.co.uk And that's Mitchell, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L And it's all lowercase, andy.mitchell at newsquest.co.uk. So that completes the headline stories for this week and we will move on to some general news stories and I think Jane's got one there if you'd like to start off. And this is from the Worcester News itself, um, its story about its own lockdown. Offices around the county have been empty for a full year since the government told people to work from home if they could in March 2020. Staff here at the Worcester News were told not to come into the office from March the 16th, 2020, if they were able to work from home following guidance from the government. Each member of our team returned to working from our Worcester office for a few days a week last year, prior to the January lockdown. Although the first national lockdown didn't come into force until March the 23rd, 
many office workers were told the week before to prepare for home working. In those early days, there were many frantic calls to IT, the finding of dusty old work phones, emptying of desks and, of course, getting to grips with Teams and Zoom meetings. With the workforce suddenly home-based for the first time in corporate history, many people struggled to juggle work with children, partners, pets, dodgy internet, parcel deliveries and the dreaded, your mic's not on, or perhaps worse, we can still hear you. And a year later, here we are, still here. And though the restrictions lifted briefly in the second half of 2020, people were not keen to rush back to the office, with many preferring the new, more relaxed lifestyle of home working. Commuters didn't have to commute. Parents were home for dinner and bedtime. Nobody was there to steal our lunch from the fridge, and we could do our work in our pyjamas. This created a cultural shift that is predicted to be around long after the pandemic is a distant memory. It has given companies the reassurance that employees can be just as efficient at home. Workers are expected to embrace the newfound work-home balance and enjoy the freedom of splitting the work week with some time left spent at home and some in the office. Lockdown restrictions are still in place in England and the government roadmap has not yet revealed when workers are allowed to return to the workplace. A city swan project is urging people to feed the swans whilst out on their daily exercise. According to the Swan Food Project, the protected birds are more hungry than usual due to the high river levels, meaning they have to work harder swimming in the strong current. A spokesman for the project said, Do take some food with you when you go for your riverside walk. It takes such a lot of energy to swim in this strong current. If you're buying bread for them, buy seeded bread. It has more of the nutrients they need. It takes longer to digest so they don't get hungry again as quickly. When feeding swans, their welfare is the first consideration. We're not trying to turn them into domestic pets, but to keep them well enough to forage for their own food and live their own wild lives. It is indeed illegal to interfere with swans unless they're sick, injured or in immediate danger. That's the Wildlife and Countryside Act 1981. And rescue centres are not allowed to release swans that have been made too tame to survive in the wild. We should not hand feed or throw food onto the ground. That teaches them to snatch or follow people away from the water where they may be at risk from dogs, cyclists, traffics and humans who fear or dislike swans. If you find swans following you, throw the food over them into the water. In Worcester, the project's small handy bags of floating pellets can be found at Brown's on South Quay, the Cathedral Gift Shop, Café Afloat and Janco Chandler's at Diglis Basin, at Birchill Dog Rescue in the Reindeer Centre, Housewives' Choice in Church Street, Commandery Coffee at the Commandery, Singa- at the Commandery and Singapore Restaurant in Friar Street, the Pump House Environment Centre by Gallivant Park, Warman's in Mill Cheapen Street, the Tourist Information Centre at the Guildhall and St John's Post Office. Well, if we all go and get a bag, they'll be very well fed, those swans. Well, the roadworks are continuing. Um, The work on a major county road improvement scheme is set to continue this year, 
with the County Council revealing its plans for 2021. The A444 Southern Link Road work is continuing, with a number of key improvements set to get underway, including work on the Carrington Bridge. The first set of works, expected to be completed in the spring, will see the finishing touches applied to the deck of the bridge before the work switches over to the new bridge and carriageway. This will enable the construction of the north wall, foot and cycle path, widening and re-waterproofing of the existing bridge decks. Works are also set to continue into the summer on the Ketch viewpoint and construction of the access onto the new Carrington Bridge, as well as a range of footway and carriageway resurfacing works. Councillor Ken Pollock, Cabinet Member for Economy and Infrastructure, said it's been a difficult year and COVID-19 is still having an impact on many of our key infrastructure projects around the county. It's great that despite this, the work has progressed very well on the Southern Link Road and we've been in the position of over the past year to put in place a number of key elements of the scheme. A huge amount of work is planned this year with many more milestone moments set to take place on this scheme in 2021. Despite the impact of COVID-19 pandemic and flooding, 2020 saw a number of key milestones achieved. In July last year, work began on the installation of a brand new Broomhall Way footbridge. The The bridge was then lifted into place in December and is set to open in September summer 2021. The steel frames to widen Carrington Bridge were lifted into place in October. The work involved the installation of steel fabricated in Darlington and installed using one of the biggest cranes in the UK. I can vouch for that, I saw it. Finally, towards the end of December and following the successful lift of the main span into place in September, there was just enough time to fit in one more major milestone with the opening of the Hams Way footbridge. For all the latest news on updates about the Southern Link Roads work, go to www.worcestershire.gov.uk slr. Phone call fraudsters pretending to be police officers are attempting to steal money from the bank accounts of elderly and vulnerable people in the four counties of Worcestershire, Herefordshire, Gloucestershire and Shropshire. Both West Mercia Police and Gloucestershire Constabulary have put out urgent warnings that criminals are phoning people up and posing as police officers before attempting to obtain bank details to get funds transferred. Detective Inspector Emma Wright of West Mercia Police said, We've received reports of fraudulent calls occurring across our communities whereby criminals are impersonating police officers, asking their victims to part with cash. We're pleased to see that some members of our communities are beginning to recognise scam calls and we're hugely grateful that you've continued to share these messages with your loved ones. You're helping to save them from becoming victims of crime. She added, whilst our officers are working hard to investigate these instances, we are once again asking you to reach out to elderly friends and family 
and remind them that a police officer will never ask them for money or to transfer funds to a courier. If this happens to you, it's a scam. Provide no personal information and hang up. Wait 10 minutes, then call us on 101. The fraudsters try to convince the person they're calling that they're assisting with an ongoing investigation or that they are under investigation themselves for offences such as money laundering. In one incident in Gloucester on March the 19th, a phone call fraudster claimed the victim's national insurance number had been located in a crashed car. The scammers said they'd completed some checks and found that money was being laundered through their bank accounts, so their bank account would be frozen. They urged their victim to transfer funds. And now um, something on the previous um, death of Sarah Everard that says that women are um, not safe on the streets. And in Worcester, leaflets have been posted through people's doors by a mystery group suggesting that to keep women safe on the streets, men should be monitored by the government 24-7. A Batten Hall resident who does not wish to be named said she received the leaflet titled Worcester Safe Streets for Women on Thursday morning but does not know who sent it. The mysterious leaflet which refers to the recent death of Sarah Everard, says new stringent laws need to be introduced to keep women safe from men, including enforcement such as curfews, fines and imprisonment. The leaflet then goes on to list several things the group feel need to be introduced, including electronically tagging men to ascertain men's movements when they're away from home and prohibiting men from entering public places not deemed as safe spaces after dark. The leaflet also states men should be deemed guilty and culpable in making a woman feel unsafe if they do not support reform laws to make women feel safe. Immediate curfews should be imposed on those men. Men should also carry ID at all times. And women should be able to physically protect themselves from any form of harassment or unwarranted attention from men and should not be fined or arrested for doing so. This comes after immediate steps aimed at improving safety for women and girls in England and Wales were announced by number 10 this week after Sarah Everard's death. Among them is an initial... £25 million for better lighting and CCTV, as well as a pilot scheme which would see plainclothes officers in pubs and clubs. Following a meeting with the government's Crime and Justice Task Force on Monday evening, Downing Downing Street said it would take immediate steps to give further reassurance to women and girls in the wake of killing of Miss Everard. Number 10 said it would double the size of Safer Streets Fund, which provides local measures such as better lighting and CCTV, to £45 Prime Minister Boris Johnson said the government was bringing in landmark legislation to toughen up sentences and put more police on the streets. He said, ultimately, we must drive out violence against women and girls and make every part of the criminal justice system work to better protect and defend them. Mystery continues to surround the cause of an unknown noise which has been troubling residents in the Claines area recently. 
People living in the area have reported hearing a high-pitched noise coming from a nearby location for weeks. The latest update from a Worcester City Council spokesman said yesterday, the investigation is continuing. The council confirmed last week that the regulatory services team are aware of the complaints are and are investigating. Contacting the Worcester News last week, a concerned resident said, there's been a high-pitched audible noise at night for weeks now in the WR3 area. One of the residents of the Clains area said on Saturday, the noise is horrific, it really hurts sensitive ears. It's so hard to determine where it's coming from. But there is a Vodafone mobile mast opposite the old park and ride on Droitwich Road that makes a similar noise at a much lower volume. Just a thought. Maybe it has a fault now and then. And if it's not that, then hopefully this can be sorted soon before we have our windows open at night in the summer. As well as the Clains and Fernal Heath areas, some people have reported hearing the noise closer to the city centre. Some said they believed the noise was coming from Checkett's Lane, possibly by the industrial estate. It was also suggested the noise was coming from the building site on the old park and ride site at Purdeswell. Others speculated it was coming from a school building from St Barnabas C of E Primary or North Worcester Primary Academy. But when contacted, the school said they hadn't had any reports about the mystery sound. One person said, I've also heard it and it was horrible. It disturbed my sleep and I live in the Tunnel Hill area. Posting on our Facebook site, Laura Fulton said, Isn't it just the gadgets people use to deter cats? It sounds like a high-pitched noise we're apparently not meant to hear, but a lot of us can. Lulu Ajavrat said, It's annoying. It's been happening for the best part of two two years near me, sometimes really early in the morning, 5am, 6am, or in the evening at 8pm. Well, we'll wait to hear what happens. Uh, This is about a drunken thug bit a man's ear outside Worcester's McDonald's in a bloody attack. Jack Lowe attacked Callum Brebner outside the restaurant in Worcester City Centre. The 24-year-old admitted assault occasioning actual bodily harm following the attack on July the 30th last year. Appearing before magistrates in Worcester on Thursday, magistrates were shown photos of the victim's bloody injuries before they announced their sentence. Richard Weatherhill, the chairman of the bench, said the defendant's solicitor told them he was shocked when he saw the injuries he had inflicted. He said this was a largely unprovoked attack. You were in drink. It was a very nasty assault in terms of the bite, which caused a nasty injury and a punch to the back of Mr Brebner's head. You have a history of similar offences. However, they also accepted he had made progress with the help of the probation service and even though the offence crossed the custody threshold they were prepared to suspend it. Magistrates imposed an 18-week prison sentence suspended for 18 months and ordered him to pay £250 compensation to his victim. Lowe was also ordered to pay £185 in court costs. Meanwhile, noise abatement proceedings against Oliver Dakers and Ellen Pearson of Warboys Road, Worcester, over a barking dog were adjourned at the same court on Friday. 
both face four charges of failing to comply with an abatement notice which required them to prevent their dogs barking excessively. The four breaches are alleged to have occurred on August the 12th, August the 14th, August the 17th and August the 18th. The prosecution is being pursued by Worcester City Council under the Environmental Protection Act 1990. Speaking at court, the clerk explained the case had been adjourned until April the 6th at 2pm because the defendants have asked for recordings of the noise. In other cases heard on Friday, Bradley Dack was banned for a minimum of 12 months under the totting up procedure after he was caught on variable speed cameras travelling speeding at 68 miles an hour in a 60 mile an hour on the M5 between Junction 6, Worcester and 5, Droitwich on June the 28th last year. The 27-year-old did not attend the hearing and with a total of 14 points on his licence was disqualified in his absence. Shelby Ingram, 27, of Hollymount Road of Tolodyne, Worcester, was also a totter after receiving 12 points on her licence, the last six for driving without insurance in Kidderminster on June the 1st last year. However, magistrates found exceptional hardship, which means she will not be banned for driving. This was found because she would lose her job as a care coordinator and due to the impact on other staff and because she took her disabled mother to medical appointments and shopping. A Callow End schoolboy has raised an impressive £609 for comic relief this Red Nose Day. George Knight, 10, shaved his head to raise money for the charity, despite having long hair for his whole life. Proud mum, Tracy Knight, said, George came up with the idea all by himself. We're so proud of him for raising money, for supporting people living incredibly tough lives in the UK and around the world. He's never had his hair cut this short. He hasn't had his hair cut since August last year either, so it is really a dramatic change. He was a little bit anxious during the shave, but he loves his new look now. Donate to George's Just Giving page here. If you want to, it's www.justgiving.com slash fundraising slash Tracy, T-R-A-C-I-E dash Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, one. Well, well done. George. And now, man chooses £110,000 over a Ferrari. So would I. A man from Worcestershire has won £110,000 after winning Dream Car Giveaway's latest supercar competition. Andrew Ward, who lives in Evesham, was left in shock and running round the house after being left with a choice of claiming a Ferrari 458 Spider or the alternative £110,000 cash prize. Andrew, along with his wife and son, arrived at Dream Cars Giveaways Unit the following week and the family were greeted by Simon Bucknell, DCG presenter and previous ITV's Speed Freaks host. Andrew and his son were treated to a blast in the 458 Spider, where some choice expletives were used to describe the experience with Andrew saying it's the fastest thing I've ever been in. After much debate and sleepless nights, Andrew decided to opt for the £110,000 cash alternative, which we will put towards paying off his mortgage. 
More issues at Copcut Junction, apparently. A controversial junction has reportedly suffered more problems after complaints of drivers being stuck due to traffic lights not changing. Over the weekend, residents took to social media to complain about the latest issue at the Copcut Junction, which follows four crashes there since the new junction layout opened last autumn. Writing on the Spotted Droitwich Facebook page, a resident said on Sunday they found... The traffic lights now have a mind of their own. Coming from Worcester, it's constantly on green. If you're trying to get through Droitwich side, it's stuck on red. Please be aware and stay stay safe. But a spokesman from Worcestershire Council Highways said, Our Transport Operations Department were made aware of the situation and one of our inspectors was on site at 10pm Sunday night and found everything to be in order. The spokesman added the traffic lights were working as they should be yesterday. Meanwhile, the council says a review of the junction on the A38 near the Copcut Elm pub, set up in responses to the crashes, remains ongoing. In two serious crashes, one in February and another in January, three people were seriously injured and were taken to hospital, with a nearby resident warning he feared there could soon be a fatality. We reported last month that, following mounting pressure, the authority acted and took the Copcut junction back to one lane both sides, laying out cones to prevent use of two lanes either side. At the time, the authority said, we've taken the decision to implement a temporary traffic management scheme at the A38 signal junction at Copcut near Droitwich, whilst a review is undertaken. This follows a number of observations associated with the operation of the junction. Warren Jennings, technical manager at Red Row Midlands, who were joint developers of the site with Persimmon Homes, had previously said designs for the junction were approved by the County Council with the authority retaining responsibility for its ongoing safety and functionality. And now Paul Harding of Discover History looks back at the many different uses for College Hall. College Hall has seen some of the biggest events in the history of Worcester. One of the most recent has been acting as a Covid testing facility for the teachers and pupils of King's Worcester as they prepared to go back to school. Originally, College Hall was built as a refectory for the Benedictine monks who served the priory. This building would have been built during the 11th century when the new cathedral was being constructed. Behind the priory, stood the buildings that created a self-sufficient and walled community. These included the dormitories, kitchens and infirmary. Many of these buildings were demolished or repurposed after the dissolution of the monasteries in the 16th century. College Hall has been altered several numerous... Well, College Hall has been altered numerous times and stands much taller today. It's one of the largest surviving refectory buildings in Britain. The monks would have used the main door from inside the cloisters or they could come in the back entrance from College Green. The refectory was built against the cloisters and was where the community would go to eat their meals. Nearby stood the kitchens where the food was prepared. The prior and obedientaries would sit on a raised platform at the east end while the community sat on long tables running the length of the hall. A designated monk would read scripture from the pulpit as people ate, feeding their soul and not just their bodies. 
The pulpit was accessed by a secret passage from the cloisters known as the Slip. Behind the prior's seat, and still in position today, is an extremely important medieval carving known as Christ in Majesty or the Majestas. This magnificent carving shows Christ as the main figure and would have been beautifully painted in bright colours and surrounded with further figures. Unfortunately, this fine carving was defaced at the time of the Reformation and plastered over to hide it. In more recent times, age has also taken its toll, but heritage funding was gifted to the cathedral to restore and stabilise it. The funding was also used to create a new heritage art and education centre in the undercroft below. The undercroft is the oldest part of the hall and has seen the least amount of change. It was designed as a store, but has had many uses over the years. In 1561, just 20 years after the King's Schools refounded by Henry VIII, College Hall was occupied by the school, as it still is today. And it was in this building one of the Mayflower pilgrims, Edward Winslow, was educated. In 1651, during the Battle of Worcester, this large hall was used to house Scottish soldiers fighting for Charles and his royalist cause. Throughout that fateful day of September the 3rd, the wounded were said to have been cared for and operated on without any form of anaesthetic. Letters held in the Cathedral Library show that after the battle, money was spent on pitch and rosin to fumigate and cleanse the building. After the Great War, a memorial to King's scholars killed in the conflict was added. A further memorial was added after the Second World War, and these are honoured each year with a special remembrance service carried out close to Remembrance Sunday. Proposals for a new multi-million pound bridge between Worcester's Gallivault Park and the old Keepax landfill site was given the go-ahead by Worcestershire County Council at a meeting on Thursday, March the 18th. Council has agreed to start awarding construction contracts so the work can begin once planning permission has been approved. Councillor Ken Pollock, Cabinet Member for Economy and Infrastructure, said the bridge would improve walking and cycling links in the city and hoped it would be as successful as the Diglis Bridge. The cost of the bridge alone will be around £5.8 million, with £4 million coming from Worcestershire County Council, 820000 from Worcester City Council and £1 million from the government's Getting Building Fund money allocated to the county. County Hall has the final say on the new bridge, but has been working in partnership with the City Council. Cabinet papers say, if approved and subject to planning consent, the bridge would be built by the end of next year, but no, def- no definitive date has yet been revealed. As much as £150,000 was first put forward by the City Council in early 2017 to look at building a new bridge in the north of the city. A further £500,000 was allocated by the City Council towards building the bridge, in July 2018. The cost of other improvements and extras around the new bridge are currently expected to cost another £3 million, which would also have to go before Cabinet before approval. And now a farmer has been fined by the police after putting up a sign calling the nearby village a lawless and godforsaken place. The sign was put up at Stone Arrow Farm by Carl Powell 
in response to councillors rejecting plans for a farm path on site. In the sign, which is on a silo, it says, Welcome to Peopleton, a murderous, lawless, godforsaken place, probably, most definitely, the nastiest place in Worcestershire. Having installed the sign, officers from West Marcia Police reportedly fined the 75-year-old £90 and ordered him to take it down. Speaking to the son, he said he was not afraid of being arrested and that the villagers had, in his view, acted out of spite. He said, the people in this village would object to anything. It's pathetic. They put their own self-interest before anything. Several years ago, I wanted to build some affordable housing on my land to help the less well-off, but they petitioned to stop it. The plans were rejected by Witchhaven councillors, whose planning rejection notice said he failed to demonstrate that the access track would be reasonably necessary for the purposes of agriculture within that unit. One of the objections came from Peopleton Parish Council, with this response saying it did not believe the path was necessary and could lead to the site being neglected. Its response said there are already at least three access points to the land in question. We do not consider another access point as necessary, especially as the volume of traffic on the current track from the village is small. The proposed track would be adjoining a 60 mile per hour highway where there are already concerns regarding speeding. Hence, slow-moving vehicles turning onto the road and increased traffic could provide a safety issue. The Parish Council has already been in contact with the police to conduct a speed survey on the highway and, consent and discuss concerns. With regards to usage, this field is not currently used for agricultural purposes and hasn't been for many years. The Parish Council has issues with regards to the functionality and if the track is not necessary, whether it would just provide a visual intrusion on the landscape rather than an essential access route. Currently, adjacent land is being used to store vehicles, trailers, machinery, rubble and other material. Therefore, the parish council are wary that the additional track could result in some misuse of the field. Well, that concludes the general news stories for this week, but I am going to finish with uh, something from Memory Lane. And um, our listeners may recall that this was a feature that used to uh, take what well, was part of the papers going back into the 80s, and they were compiled by Michael Grundy. This is a before, or well, a then and now, on the shambles. But, of course, the now that is being written about was in the 1980s, so... You fast forward to 2021 and think about the changes that have happened since this article was written. It's, it's quite interesting. For centuries, the shambles was Worcester's death row for animals. This street was the heartland of the city's butchery trade and private slaughterhouses. I'm sure it's not more than 15 years since I last remember seeing cattle lorries delivering loads of sheep and cows to their fate. Saturday nights once drew big crowds to this bustling thoroughfare in search of meat bargains. In those times, few butchers had any form of refrigeration, so after 9pm on Saturdays, the shambles took on the appearance of a medieval fair as the butchers disposed of unsold meat cheaply rather than allow it to spoil over the weekend. Crowds of poorer folk gathered to get bargains. Day or night... 
the ancient thoroughfare was a lively place, not only for the intense competition between butchers and slaughterhouses, but also greengrocers. It echoed to shouts of ripe tomatoes, beautiful cucumbers and best oranges. Former city and county councillor, the late Bill Thompson, was one of the greengrocery barkers, who many will remember for his sales patter. I recall as a junior reporter some 25 years ago, standing for hours outside his shop trying to get an interview with Bill. He had advertised internationally for a wife as one of Worcester's eligible bachelors. A German woman answered his plea, and all Fleet Street descended on Worcester to see how he would fare in his wooing. None of us could get an interview, and in a matter of days, the German lady returned home. Bill died last year, a bachelor. The Shambles used to boast three popular pubs, the Liverpool Vaults, the Butcher's Arms and the Coach and Horses, but none remains today. As always, I am indebted to the remarkable researches of Worcester historian Bill Gwilliam for much of the background to this article, taken from his Old Worcester, Volume 1. He recalls personally Taylor's, the Shambles Grocers, who kept the ripest of cheeses and whose displays had a marked impact on passers-by. Mr Gwilliam also remembers Mills Fish and Chip Shop, where in the 1930s a bag of cotton chips costs threepence halfpenny in those days, which is little more than a penny in today's coinage. Remember, we are in 1984 at this moment. Only a tiny semblance of the butcher's trade now remains in the shambles, which has taken on the totally different complexion as a retail shopping street. Not surprising, perhaps, as the old slaughterhouses would scarcely have met the hygienic standards demanded nowadays. The shambles may have changed in character, but it remains a popular place to shop, and once paved over in a few months' time, it will be another of Worcester's traffic-free pedestrian havens. One of our pictures of the shambles here, past, shows the old medieval building of J&F Hall, the Ironmongers, which stood at the corner with Church Street. Since this building was pulled down in the 1960s, the City Council has always borne the brunt of criticism for its disappearance. Yet the truth is that the Council fought bitterly to retain this important feature of the city scene. It was Whitehall which overruled the Council following a public inquiry and allowed halls to be pulled down, one of the architectural disasters to befall Worcester in the redevelopment-mad 1960s. Still going strong after more than a century is one of Worcester's unofficial tourist attractions, Prattley's China Shop. This Aladdin's cave is stacked high with vast quantities of china and porcelain, piled precariously along each side of narrow gangways for shoppers. Amazingly, Prattley's suffer few smashed crocs. Well, of course, Prattley's is now no more, and we almost need to do a now and then again with this article and talk about the changes since um, this was written. Okay, so up, back up to date now. We've got uh, three or four short sports articles to read, and then we'll move on to um, birthdays and thought for the day. Jane, over to you. Right, lessons learned. Head coach Thomas insists heavy bath defeat will act as a valuable lesson to young warriors. So we're into rugby here. Worcester Warriors head coach Jonathan Thomas explained how a few home truths were shared at half-time 
during Worcester's heavy 47-22 defeat to Bath. The home side were 40 up at the break after scoring six tries, but a second-half resurgent from Warriors saw them take home a try, scoring a bonus point after winning the second 40 minutes, 22-7. Thomas admitted the young and experienced side on the day were not at it in the first half and let themselves down. We are really disappointed with that first half, he said. We picked that team for a reason, because we believe in them, but they didn't do themselves justice. But they will take a great lesson from that, and that is if you can't afford to feel your way into a premiership match. Some of the non-negotiables in rugby are emotion, physicality and intent, and that hasn't changed in a 100 years, and that's what we didn't have first half. But when they corrected that at half-time, they showed what they could do. We gave them a bit of technical feedback, but most of it was to tell them a few home truths and told them they needed to show some commitment, and mainly around how you should show that, line speed and collisions. We gave them soft metres first half, but then we set them the challenge at half-time to score four tries and treating the game as nil-nil and win the second half, which they did. So we're happy with that, but really disappointed. We let ourselves down the first half. Some of these younger guys need to experience what it feels like to be in the arena, and they will be better for that experience, but a harsh lesson to take. Warriors fielded a much-changed side from last week's defeat to London Irish, and a number of younger players were given the chance to impress, including 18-year-old fly-half Finn Smith who became Worcester's youngest ever Premiership starter. Smith had a difficult afternoon, but in the second half showed what he can produce. I don't blame Finn for that first half, added Thomas. He didn't get a lot of the ball and was defending most of the time. But as soon as the forwards gave him a bit more of a platform, he showed what a quality player he's going to be. Nick David was brought off the field in the first half, following a collision with Bath's Sam Underhill that forced him off the field in what was the only injury concern on the day. The tackle was looked at by the officials, but despite there appearing to be a shoulder contact with the head, referee Adam Leal decided against taking any further action. I will just go on the facts, and they are that he had to go off for an HIA and he has a sore head, said Thomas. I can't speculate on what exactly happened, but I would say if you put two and two together, you would assume he's been hit in the head. But obviously the referee has seen it differently. We will go away and have a look at it. Warriors remain bottom of the Gallagher Premiership and without a win since the opening day of the season. They return to six ways to face Northampton Saints this weekend before a two-week break. Cricket. Worcestershire County Cricket Club enjoyed a positive return to action last weekend as they drew their two-day warm-up fixture with last summer's Bob Willis Trophy finalists, Somerset, at Taunton. Club captain Joe Leach and fellow new ball bowler Dylan Pennington picked up three wickets apiece as the Somerset first innings was wrapped up inside the morning session for just 176 in 46.1 overs, a deficit of 129. It was an, ac- an excellent effort by a Worcestershire attack as the top four batsmen in the Somerset batting lineup were all permitted to bat twice each. 
Tom Fell, Jack Haynes and Ed Barnard then had some excellent batting practice in a total of 104 declared to follow on from century maker Ricky Vessels, new signing Gareth Roderick, Ross Whiteley and Alex Milton during the first innings on the first day. There was time for Pennington and Adam Finch to claim another wicket apiece as Somerset closed on 69 for two in their second innings. Now football. Worcester City captain Craig Jones has been added to the new city manager Tim Harris's coaching team ahead of football's nearing return. Following on from the appointment of Andy Bevan as assistant manager, Tim Harris has finalised his backroom staff by appointing Jones as a first-team coach, whilst continuing on as a player. Club captain Jones took interim charge prior to the appointment of Tim Harris in January, following Ashley Vincent's resignation in December. Jones was unbeaten in his short stint as boss, including the Boxing Day derby win over Starport Swifts in the league and gaining a late point away at Tividale. In his career today, Jones has made over 300 appearances in non-league football, bringing a natural understanding of the game to his new role. On joining the coaching staff, Jones said, It's an exciting opportunity and one I'm grateful to have been offered. Although I'm fully focused on playing and believe I've still got a few years left yet, the chance to gain experience within a magisterial staff will be great for me personally. I'm looking forward to helping the new management team in any way that I can. Worcester City are a huge club in non-league football with a great fan base and I'm determined to do everything I can on and off the pitch to help bring us success. Tim Harris added, I'm delighted Craig has agreed to be part of the management structure and I see him as an important part of the team. He's an experienced and natural leader. His main focus will be leading us on the pitch and although he will also play an integral role off the pitch with Andy and myself. Craig has been fantastic both on and off the pitch since he's been here, Chairman Steve Good commented. I'm pleased that Craig is taking on this dual role because we all know what he can offer and I think I speak for everyone when I say I just can't wait for them to get going now. With his coaching team now confirmed, Tim and his staff continue to prepare for the 21-22 season in which Worcester City will look to improve on the difficult 2021 campaign. Before the eventual curtailment of the Midland Football League Premier Division in February, City had managed just two wins out of 12 games, which proved decisive in Vincent's resignation. Worcester rallied under Jones and finished with four points from six and ended in 14th place in the table, but City fans will be hopeful of much more this season under the new coaching team. And one more cricket story. The county are looking to add some pace to their, their attack with the addition of the Windies Joseph. So Worcestershire County Cricket Club have signed West Indies bowler Alzari Joseph as its overseas player for the opening phase of the 2021 season. The West Indies fast bowler will fly in from Antigua on 4th of April and is available for seven successive LV Insurance County Championship fixtures. 24-year-old Joseph has played 14 tests in total, 
claiming 34 wickets plus 34 ODIs, taking 54 wickets. Joseph was also the West Indies' leading wicket-taker during the 2016 Under-19 World Cup with 13 wickets in six games. He grabbed the headlines worldwide after his debut for Mumbai Indians against Sunrisers Hyderabad in the Indian Premier League in 2019. His astonishing figures of 6 for 12 are the best by a bowler in the competition's history. Worcestershire Cricket Steering Group chairman Paul Pridgen said, He's a quality performer and we are delighted to have signed him for the best part of two months. With it looking like Josh Tung and Pat Brown may not be match fit for the start of the season, Alex Gidman, head coach, and Joe Leach, club captain, both felt they needed another seamer. Alzari is going to be available for seven matches and is an exciting prospect. Well, good luck to them all, I say. And that concludes the sport. It's pretty thin on the ground at the moment, I'm afraid. So we will now have... uh, the thought for the day from Jane, please. And this is from John 11, verses 25 to 27. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replies. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Thank you, Jane. Well, I'm very sorry to have to disappoint our listeners, but the birthdays file is nowhere to be found. So I cannot wish any individual who has a birthday coming up this week a happy birthday. But I'd like to wish anyone, whether you're in the birthday file or not, a very happy birthday from all of us here at Talking Newspapers. And I hope that you can celebrate in the best way possible despite lockdown restrictions. So happy birthday, anyone who's got one coming up. And that brings us to the end of this week's recording. I would like to say a big thank you to Jane for coming in and to John for his work behind the screen as our engineer and to Carol for copying an admin. So it's goodbye from John who's waving. Goodbye from goodbye from me. Goodbye from Jane, and a goodbye from me. And if you uh, want to listen to the obituaries, they will be following on from the music. Percival, Anthony, Tony, former Royal Mail worker, Worcester, passed away suddenly on sixth of March, two thousand and twenty-one, aged eighty-eight years. Due to COVID-19 restrictions, a private funeral service will take place on Tuesday the 30th of March. Donations, if desired, for the Midlands Air Ambulance may be sent to Bedwardine Funeral Services, 01905 748811. Ruff, Ruby, Amy, passed away peacefully at home after a short illness on March the 7th. 2021. Private family funeral, family flowers only with donations for St Richard's Hospice, which may be sent to F.W. Spilsbury Funeral Director, 12 Upper Housel Road, Malvern, Worcestershire, WR 141TL. 
Wareham, Brian Wyatt, passed away peacefully on March the 4th, 2021, aged 95. Donations to St Richard's Hospice may be sent care of Bedwardine Funeral Services, 30 Bromyard Road, Worcester, WR2 5BT. 01905 748811 or online brianwareham.muchloved.com Stone Michael Mike died on 16th March, age 98. Private funeral with family flowers only. Donations, if desired, to Blind Veterans UK. A memorial service will follow when circumstances allow. John Franklin Tyra passed away suddenly on March 15th, aged 79 years. A private cremation will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, March the 29th at 11.30am. Attendance by invitation only, please. Flowers or donations for the Brain Trauma Foundation may be sent to E. Hill & Son Funeral Directors, Pershaw, WR10 1HZ. Vera Jean Gisborne, Vera passed away peacefully at home after a short illness on the 2nd of March, aged 94. Malcolm, known as Stan Lilly, passed away peacefully at home on the 8th of March, surrounded by his family. Funeral to take place at Worcester Crematorium on 25th of March at 1.45pm. Donations to the Dog Trust Care of Bedwardine Funeral Services. Sue Summers passed away at St Richard's Hospice on March the 9th, aged 71 years. There'll be a private family funeral at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, March the 31st. Donations for St Richard's Hospice where Sue spent the last week of her life, may be sent care of Bedwardine Funeral Services, 30 Bromyard Road, Worcester, WR25BT, telephone 01905 748811. Baker Robert James, known as Bob the Builder, passed away peacefully aged 77 years on 5th of March at St Richard's Hospice.